0: Hello, it's Wednesday, the 17th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon South Korea, the U.S. and Japan have conducted the first round of regular joint naval exercises amid rising tensions on the peninsula. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For our In-Depth today, we'll discuss the recent election results in Taiwan and what it could mean for tensions between the U.S. and China, as well as the implications for South Korea. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we review a short story by the acclaimed writer pyeonghae about a former soldier struggling with the transition to civilian life. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. South Korea, the United States and Japan have completed the first round of regular joint naval exercises in international waters south of Jeju Island for three days, ending on Wednesday. This comes on the heels of threats and warnings exchanged across the border following the North's launch of a ballistic missile our KBS World Radio News Editor Jin joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest on this as well as our ed- other headlines of the day. Jin, hello. Hello, John. Now, these are the first trilateral drills held after the three allies launched a real-time sharing system for North Korea's missile launches and agreed to establish a multi-year exercise plan against Pyongyang's growing aggression. So what did this drill involve?
1: Well, the uh, Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the drills involved nine warships including South Korea's Navy's Aegis Combat System-equipped destroyers, the U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson and Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force Uh, Congo-class destroyers. The USS Carl Vinson's return to the Korean Peninsula was the first visit in three months uh, following a visit last October. The regular drills aimed at responding to the North Korea's nuclear and missile threats were agreed upon during a trilateral defence minister's meeting last June. This week's uh, exercise were carried out following the uh, North's launch of a hypersonic missile over the weekend.
0: Yes, in response to that launch of the hypersonic intermediate-range ballistic missile, South Korea imposed independent sanctions on 11 vessels, two individuals and three entities accused of involvement in illegal ship-to-ship transfers of oil and other products to North Korea. Give us the details.
1: Well, the foreign ministry uh, ministry said on Wednesday uh, that it has sanctioned the uh, vessels, individuals and entities engaged in illegal maritime activities that support North Korea's nuclear and missile development programs. North Korea has been funding its nuclear and missile development programs and evading UN Security Council sanctions through various illegal activities such as ship to ship, oil transfers at sea and coal smuggling. The blacklisted vessels are suspected of involvement in transshipment with North Korean ships, smuggling refined oil and coal into the north and supplying, selling and transferring goods to and from North Korea in violation of multiple Security Council resolutions. It marks the first time in eight years since 2016 that South Korea has imposed independent sanctions on ships. Wednesday sanctions are the 15th set of sanctions imposed by the UN administration.
0: Now, While tensions are flaring up between the two Koreas, North Korea is continuing to draw closer to Russia. The top diplomats of the two nations met on Tuesday and they expressed interest in developing cooperation between them. They also discussed security issues on the peninsula. Can you tell us what was said in the discussion and also during a subsequent meeting with President Vladimir Putin?
1: Yes, North Korean Foreign Minister Chesony, uh, who is visiting Russia on a three-day trip, held talks with her Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, at the rece- uh, reception house of the Russian Foreign Ministry in Moscow on Tuesday. In opening remarks for the talks, Lavrov said that two sides will discuss ways to expand bilateral cooperation, such as a, a brooch, uh, global issues such as the situation on the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia. Regarding the uh, situation on the peninsula, Lavrov uh, criticised the policies of the U.S. and its satellite countries, determining that they are not constructive and adding that uh, Russia will continue to demand that they abandon any measures to increase tensions. Uh, The Russian minister also expressed gratitude for North Korea's support of Russia's military operations in Ukraine. Chair later met with Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin as she and Lavrov... uh, uh, reported the results of their talks. Now, although the Kremlin has yet to release an official outcome of that meeting, the two sides are believed to have discussed a possible visit uh, by Putin to North Korea, as Chair said at the beginning of the talks that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had uh, extended an invitation to Putin.
0: Meanwhile, there's an alarming report from Radio Free Asia of belated news that a North Korean passenger train overturned in Dancheon, South Hamgyong province, on December 26th last year, killing hundreds of people. What can you tell us?
1: Well, RFA's report on Tuesday cited a local source saying that the train was travelling from Pyongyang and heading to Geunggol, uh, South Hamgyong province, when it headed up a high hill. Uh, due to old railway tracks and a lack of power, the train slid back and derailed. The source said the two prestige train carriages that were connected right behind the locomotive did not derail with the passengers inside this prestige train car surviving the accident. However, the report said most of the passengers on the remaining seven carriages died with the death toll reaching over 400.
0: Yes, we'll try to bring updates on this incident when and if we are able to get further confirmation. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to other headlines now. Prime Minister Han Deok-su, Soo, is attending an annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, said South Korea will take a leading role in nuclear power, carbon-free energy and artificial intelligence. Uh, What else did he say at this high-profile gathering?
1: Well, at a session on nu- nuclear power on Tuesday, Han pledged South Korea as a leading nuclear power state would uh, would uh, contribute towards decarbonization and reinforcement of energy security and sustainable development. The Prime Minister called for the international community to participate in the carbon-free energy initiative proposed by President Yoon Song-yeon last September while emphasising the, uh, the importance of nuclear power in counter countering uh, climate change and bolstering energy security. At a session on AI, Han drew attention to how an AI gap between countries could lead to serious issues in the future before discussing Seoul's efforts to establish an international foundation on the matter and Korea hosting the second AI Safety Summit.
0: Turning to the economy, the government has decided to scrap a pending income tax on financial investments and reduce a securities transaction tax as part of efforts to help private investors build assets. So can you tell us more?
1: Well, the state-run regulator, Financial Services Commission, disclosed its decision on Wednesday during an open forum chaired by President Yoon sung yeol on people's livelihood. This comes after the president vowed in his New Year's ad- address to uh, overcome the so-called career discount, afflicting local stocks with lower values or higher risk premiums compared to global assets by streamlining red tape in the capital market. Now, initially, the government was set to re- he introduced the income tax on financial investments in 2025 to impose a tax rate of 20% on investors whose capital gains exceeded certain amounts following investment in financial products, including uh, stocks, bonds, funds and derivatives. During the debate, President Yun also pledged to push for le- uh, legislative uh, uh, revisions to in- institutionalized electronic-based general shareholders meetings in order to help minority shareholders voice their opinions.
0: In other news, the main opposition Democratic Party leader, Lee Jae-myung, has expressed regrets over recent defections by party representatives and members, including former party chair Lee Nagyon, ahead of April's general elections. Can you tell us what he said?
1: Well, at a DP ceremony on Wednesday, E, who returned to work some two weeks after recovering from a stabbing attack, said it was unfortunate that they had left despite uh, party efforts to maintain integrity, uh, integration, sorry, and unity. The DP chief said that regardless of these uh, developments, it remains the opposition's responsibility to find new hope and a new path that will meet public expectations. He said the upcoming elections carry weight as they need to clearly censure the Yoon song yeol administration, which he called reckless and regressive. That's where we're going to wrap up our news briefing. Heejin, thank
0: you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party pulled off a third consecutive presidential victory on Saturday, the first time a political party has done so since democratic elections began in 1996 for the island. Lai te the current vice president, received just over 40% of the total votes despite warnings from China over his pro-sovereignty views. However, at the same time, his party lost its majority in parliament. To take a deep dive into these results and its geopolitical implications around the island and between the U.S. and China, as well as South Korea, we're joined on the line by two guests. First, we have Mason Ritchie, Associate Professor of International Politics at Hangul University of Foreign Studies. Professor Ritchie, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. And we also have Jonathan Cheng, the China Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal, as well, who was in Taiwan covering the elections. Mr. Cheng, hello and thank you for your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So for our listeners, Mr. Chen, can you first walk us through the election results of Taiwan's presidential and legislative elections, which took place on January 13th?
2: Well, I think you did a pretty good job of explaining it there. Basically, it was a three-way race, which is uh, unusual for Taiwan and unusual in many places. And uh, it really was a dead heat. Although at the end, it sort of ended up being what most people had expected with uh, of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is the party that's in power now, keeping the presidency. It's actually the first time since Taiwan started to have um, fully democratic elections in 1996 that we have one party winning three elections in a row. Like the U.S., you can run for two terms, um, and the current uh, president, Tsai uh, Ing-wen, is sort of term-limited out. But um, they'll hang on to the presidency. The difference is, as you also mentioned, the legislature is now going to be a bit more split than it was in the past. So previously, the DPP, the ruling party, had both the presidency and the legislature, but now that won't be the case. So that means that it was mostly a win for the DPP, but they won't be able to get everything that they want because they'll have to compromise in the in the legislature.
0: Right, and can you tell us also about the president-elect, Lai Chinta? who is he and what can we expect from him
2: well he's been the vice president uh, for the last four years in taiwan so he's already a pretty well-known presence across uh across taiwan and across mainland china mainland china doesn't like him because a he's from the democratic progressive party which is the party that beijing sees as more leaning towards independence towards separatism they would say towards um sort of trying to promote an identity for Taiwan that is separate from uh, the mainland Chinese sort of identity. So that's part of his uh, political background. Um, He's also said some stuff in the past that Beijing has been particularly wary of, and not just Beijing, but also Washington, because neither the U.S. nor China wants to see Taiwan move too dramatically in that direction, because if that were to happen, it could spark a war, because it could spark... Uh, a desire in Beijing to say, well, enough is enough. Uh, if Taiwan wants to go independent for real, then we need to intervene. And we may have to do that militarily. So no one wants to see Taiwan rock the boat right now, neither the two major powers. So lighting Tsing, the, there's a little bit of an unknown quantity in that regard, because he has said in the past that he regards himself as And this is the phrase that he used, a practical worker for independence. And this phrase keeps coming up every time you read about him because he did say that in the past. And people have said, well, does that mean that he wants to push for independence? If he becomes the president, will he sort of move out of a very careful phase? You know, like in many elections, you'll have a candidate who will keep a very cautious position. He won't show his hand. Uh, but once he gets into power, then he'll sort of feel like, OK, well, now I can do whatever I want. So that's sort of the concern around him and whether or not he's going to to do something dramatic like that.
0: Right. And just to wrap up the results themselves, uh, what did people end up voting on? Uh, you said it was a three-way race. Uh, why
2: was it uh,
0: Lai Ching-Te who uh, won the vote?
2: Well, you know, every election is... At heart usually about domestic issues. So there's a lot on the economy. There's a lot about sort of social services and about uh, employment and finding jobs for young people. There's energy policy. There's all these sorts of things. But of course, the thing that we tend to focus on from outside of Taiwan and the thing that actually it's also a concern within Taiwan as well is the relationship with mainland China. And it is the question of Taiwan status because it isn't, an internationally recognized sovereign state, the US, South Korea, many countries are willing to work with Taiwan, and they're friendly to Taiwan, but there's no formal diplomatic relations. In fact, Taiwan, as of today, only has diplomatic relations with 12 other countries around the world, right? So most of the others recognize China, they don't recognize Taiwan. And this general question around what Taiwan status is was definitely part of the equation in this election as well, um, except I think people in Taiwan look at it not as a question of whether or not we're going to declare formal independence or not. It's really about the relationship with Beijing, whether or not we want to get closer to China or not. But, you know, as, as listeners in South Korea will know, um, a lot of people living in what you could generally say are Western style liberal democracies, and I'll include South Korea, Japan. Uh, Australia, of course, um, Taiwan, the Philippines, maybe, you know, India, the US. I mean, anyways, however you define it, many people in these countries, especially the ones on China's periphery, have grown more suspicious and grown more cautious about China, partly because um, of what has happened with Xinjiang and Hong Kong and other places where really what you've seen is Xi Jinping in Beijing taking a pretty hard line stance towards these places and any semblance of let's call it disobedience or or wanting to do something different from what Xi Jinping wants. He'll be quite firm and quite strong on it, where his predecessors may not have been that way. And so you see this divide between China and the Western world sort of grow wider. And I think Taiwan is no exception to that. I mean, Taiwan has a special perspective on it because it speaks Chinese, because history has bound it closer to China. But many people there would say we're not Chinese. And... Many people would say we don't want anything to do with mainland China. Many of them would say we saw what's happened in Hong Kong over the last few years and we don't know that we want to put ourselves in a position where Beijing is going to have that sort of power over us. And so that's why you sort of see three elections in a row, Taiwan's electorate moving towards a position that's far more skeptical of China. Professor Richelin, turn to you now. Thank you for standing
0: by. Uh, What did you make of the results of the election particularly first, what it will mean for relations between Taiwan and China?
3: Yeah, so, uh, you know, first of all, I think that Jonathan did a great job uh, of covering uh, um, all of those issues. You know, uh, what we've seen really, uh, so far, is a relatively muted response um, from China to this election outcome, which I think, in part, reflects uh, the toned-down discourse that that Lai has had. It also, I think, reflects the fact that Taiwan is actually quite split and there's, there's hardly a mandate for independence. Uh, so obviously Beijing doesn't want to press too hard and end up provoking the opposite um, of what it would like to have. I think that you know there are really sort of um, two, you know, two types of things that are a sort of bare minimum response that we can expect from China. One is that it's going to press forward on dip- diplomatic pressure against Taiwan. Uh, as Jonathan just mentioned, um, it's going to continue to insist on what it calls the One China Principle, which is essentially that you know, there is no distinction between Taiwan and China. Uh, and of course, it's going to continue to put pressure on the, the few remaining diplomatic allies um, that Taiwan has, uh, as we just saw um, with the example of Nauru, which was just poached um, from, from Taiwan. And secondly, I think we can expect a sort of carrot and stick uh, approach and probably mostly stick uh, from Beijing uh, aiming to prevent Taiwan, obviously, from uh, fomenting independence discourse um, and coalescing more of a a Taiwanese identity. Uh, So I think those sticks might include information campaigns, uh, influence operations, uh, veiled threats, uh, the use of force, sometimes what we call gray zone or or hybrid um, measures. We can expect, I think, you know, continued military, notably naval and air exercises uh, that, you know, cross the median line, uh, approach Taiwanese airspace, uh, feigning uh, uh, naval encirclement of Taiwan, all in in the effort to sort of exhaust um, Taiwan by harassment. There are, of course, also more extreme scenarios one could imagine, you know, major cyber attack, shelling Taiwanese islands, and ultimately, of course, you know, an actual invasion. The latter of those two, you know, shelling an island and attack, I think, are, are, are highly unlikely. Uh, they would probably be provoked uh, only if Taiwan were to declare uh, independence or were, were to be seen to be in the process of doing so. But she has told his military to be ready by 2027. Um, and so there is a little bit um, uh, of some ambiguity about exactly what um, China's intentions are.
0: Right. Mr. Cheng, what do you think we need to look out for from China? How do you think... China could respond to this uh, election result?
2: Well, I think uh, I, I think Mason put it pretty well there. I mean, it, it will be this attempt to squeeze Taiwan in every possible way short of war. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is if there is going to be a military sort of a response here, um, the worst case scenario, of course, would be outright war. But you have to think that right now, given a lot of considerations, that Beijing, Xi Jinping would be hesitant to pull the trigger, as it were, because of course you see what's happened with Russia-Ukraine, where uh, Vladimir Putin thought that this would be a pretty simple operation, and instead it's been now a two-year-long boondoggle. Um, And a lot of the Chinese military is based, I mean, both the equipment and some of the, the, the structuring of the military um, shares a lot in common with uh, the Russian military and, and the Soviet sort of predecessor. Um, the, the difference is that Ukraine is a land war. There's a long land border and Taiwan is an island and it is an amphibious sort of situation that would be extremely difficult to pull off, even under the best of circumstances. Um, I mean, Again, Korea, of course, knows about this from Douglas MacArthur and and, uh, the Incheon landing during the Korean War. But this stuff is not easy to do. And it's not easy to do if you potentially have the U.S. getting involved, if you potentially have Hmm. uh, Australia, Japan getting involved and Home, if you're a Xi Jinping, you're also looking at the People's Liberation Army. He's been purging a lot of his top generals in the last couple months, and there's been a lot of cor- concern about corruption within the military. So if you're a Xi Jinping and you want to launch a military sort of assault, you have to think that given Vladimir Putin's example, given the concerns you have about your own forces and whether or not they're going to be fully loyal and able to fight maybe this isn't the time to do that. But of course, that's all speculation on our part. And we're not saying that people necessarily make the best decision. And we don't, frankly, have enough transparency or insight into exactly what's going on in Beijing. Even as I sit here in Beijing, it's hard to know what people here in power are really thinking and planning.
0: Right. And then the other factor is, Professor Ritchie, what do you think the results of this election means for the US's involvement in this region?
3: Well, I think the, the U.S. is going to continue to insist on the one-China policy, which is uh, very different from the one-China principle. Um, you know, the, the one-China policy uh, is the way that the United States, uh, you know, essentially supports Taiwan while leaving the decision as to Taiwan status, you know, up to, up to Taiwan and China. Uh, the U.S. will continue to insist on, at the same time, Taiwan, uh, street, straight, Taiwan straight peace, And no independence declaration by Taiwan. Uh, The U.S. will continue to remain ambiguous in terms of its defense commitments uh, to Taiwan. Uh, And I think, lastly, the U.S. is, uh, and this is perhaps a bit underappreciated, really going to need to deliver um, on uh, the promises that it has made to Taiwan, notably with respect to arms sales. Uh, the U.S. already has, you know, a, quite a backlog of commitments, uh, not only to Taiwan, but to other countries in terms of material and equipment and, and various military technologies. that it's going to have to get through its defense industrial pipeline to flow into Taiwan. Uh, and the United States is going to have to work on that. Uh, and that's in addition to, you know, whatever uh, is going to be uh, committed in the future. Uh, so I think that, you know, those are, are four areas where I think we can expect the United States uh, to have a fairly clear um, uh, clear set of, uh, of pathways for, for how it approaches the Taiwan uh, Strait issue.
0: Right. And Mr. Cheng, uh, are there any other concerns that lie ahead when it comes to the US's involvement in the region, especially with the elections coming up at the end of the year as well?
2: Yeah, well, that's the biggest wild card, I think, not just for Taiwan and China, but I think for the world, is whether or not we do see Donald Trump go back to the White House. If he does, then... At least as far as i'm concerned all bets are off i don't know that we know for sure what a second trump presidency would look like um many people look back at the first term and they would say well he took a phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, the president of taiwan at the time and that was groundbreaking in a sense uh, because that had never happened there had never been direct contact like that between um you know the top guy in the white house uh, at least as president-elect at the time, and the leader in Taiwan. Um, On the other hand, he suggested that he wouldn't necessarily intervene if there was to be a fight between China and Taiwan. Joe Biden, in contrast, has said four times that the U.S. would definitely get involved, but each time the White House has walked back Joe Biden's comments. So there's a little bit of ambiguity with both presidents. So in a certain sense, no matter what happens in November in the U.S., it's not clear what would happen in either case. But I think it would probably be even more uncertain in the case of a second Trump presidency. So I think everyone's looking to see what happens in November.
0: And finally, Professor Ritchie, what could this mean for South Korea as well? Because the current administration has aligned itself quite heavily with the U.S. on matters concerning Taiwan. President Yun has even issued statements that have uh, angered Beijing, saying things like that he opposes uh, China's attempt to change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait by force. What do you think this means for South Korea?
3: Yeah, so, you know, t- in some respects, I think uh, it would have been easier for South Korea if the opposition, for instance, the KMT uh had won which is somewhat more Beijing friendly and we might have seen you know uh, we might see have seen a world with a little bit less tension in that area you know diplomatically i think this result means that the you know given the tension that's going to take place you know the us is going to continue to include language on uh you know taiwan strait peace uh you know on the status quo uh you know on you know regional order Uh, in the Taiwan Strait area and all of its alliance communiques, including those with uh, South Korea, and that puts South Korea in a a little bit of a complicated position vis-à-vis Beijing. Uh, The tension there will mean that South Korea is going to have to be worried about, you know, trade routes in the the Taiwan Strait and the risks there, uh, as well as the potential consequences for the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Uh, If some type of crisis were to take place, you know, what would the implications be for the United States and how would that have knock-on impact on the U.S.-ROC alliance? You know, my advice to to South Korea, to the extent that anyone would ever care about that, is, you know, that South Korea should continue to be strong vis-a-vis Beijing. Uh, They respect uh, strength, uh, not uh, not weakness, Uh, to continue uh, focusing on their trilateral cooperation with the U.S. and Japan that has a deterrent effect. Uh, at the same time, to balance uh, you know, economically with China by focusing on the win-win uh, economic policies that South Korea and China can continue to, to have together and use South Korea's leverage where it has it, such as, for instance, semiconductors, where China is to some degree dependent on, for instance, Samsung and S.K. Hynix. So, you know, that, there, it's not like South Korea has no leverage at all, and, and semiconductors is one of the places where that's the case.
0: Well, we will see how tensions develop in the region this year. That's where we'll leave it. We've been speaking to Professor Mason Ritchie from the Hangul University of Foreign Studies and Jonathan Cheng from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you both for your time today.
3: Great. Thanks for having me.
2: Been a pleasure.
4: Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock
1: and Forex update. The benchmark Korea Composite stock price index fell 61.69 points, or 2.47% on Wednesday, to close at 2,435.90. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also fell, shedding 21.78 points, or 2.55%, to close at 833.05. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 12.41 against the U.S. dollar to close at 1,344.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
0: It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And with us for this in the studio, it is... News editor Daniel Chad to bring us those stories. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you too, jang Hu.
5: Okay, so what do you have for us first? A two of the most popular pets in the world are arguably cats and dogs. A recent study shows it's more expensive to have the latter as a companion. According to figures released by the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs
0: on Tuesday, it is around 50% more expensive, apparently, to rear dogs than cats. Yes, I don't think this will come as a surprise for many of our listeners, as I'm sure people will know that dogs... Are not only bigger in general, but also higher maintenance, but in Korea where Pet culture has only really exploded in the last decade or so. Some might be surprised about how much more expensive they are. Can you walk us through the
5: figures? Yes, yeah, so the research was conducted on 5,000 pet owners between the ages of 20 and 64 residing in various regions of the country. Data was compiled using an online survey conducted between November 3rd and the 13th of last year. On average, various costs for looking after a single pet, dog or cat, including pet food, would add up to around Hundred and thirty thousand one or close to one hundred dollars a month. For dog owners, the average monthly cost was around one hundred and sixty six thousand one while cat owners spent some hundred so and thirteen thousand, so one hundred and twenty three and eighty three US dollars respectively. Veterinary hospitals were the most frequented pet services at over eighty percent. Pet grooming services were runner up,
0: trailed by play areas and hotels. Okay, as more people have started owning pets in Korea, I'm sure they've become more aware of the costs as well. But at the same time, we've also been seeing an improved sense of responsibility and awareness when it comes to what it takes to own a pet as well, right?
5: Yes, first of all, the perception of adoption improved drastically with more than 84% of respondents saying they would adopt abandoned pets from relevant facilities. On how they first became pet owners, the highest proportion of nearly 42% said they got their canine or feline companions through friends. Trailing behind was pet shops at 24 with animal shelters in third place at 9. Only about 18% said they did think about giving up their pets, with the main reason being behavioral issues like barking, topping the list at over 45%, excess spending being the second
0: biggest reason at over 40%. Yes, it's a huge responsibility, of course, to raise a dog. It requires money, time, effort and patience. So prospective owners need to be aware of what they are getting themselves into, but uh, they can also bring wonderful joy to households as well. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Huachan
5: Sancheon Ice Festival has been picked as one of the five must-see festivals in Asia this
0: winter by U.S. newspaper The New York Times. Yes, we talked about this festival on Morning Edition Preview just last week and it's uh, now being mentioned in the New York Times. Interesting. Well, uh, for those who might not know what this festival is about, can you tell us more about it?
5: Well, the festival started on January 6th in Huachan County this year, the Cowan Province, and it's on until the 28th of this month. Thousands gather every year to secure a spot in one of the pre-drilled holes in the frozen Huachan stream. Catching trout with bare hands requires skills and patience, especially considering the freezing cold, but some say it's all in the wrist. <laughs> Great if you can catch and eat what you work for, but even if you come out empty-handed and find out that this is not one of your skill sets, there are plenty of trout dishes to savor regardless. The local trouts reportedly go perfectly with local beer as well. (laughs) Not only that, visitors can check out other fun events like skating, sledding, and ice biking even.
0: Yes, it's a hugely popular event with the locals and tourists alike, right? Uh, and it seems to be getting more international attention nowadays as well then. Yes, according to
5: on officials, in the first 10 days of the festival, media outlets from numerous countries ranging from China, Japan, Southeast Asia and European countries covered the event and sent out some 283 reports about the festival. On the first day of the new year, the online edition of the New York Times introduced the Hachan Sanchana Ice Festival as an exciting event that attracts people all over the world. To show how people fight the cold and take part in it, the Times showed a photo of a participant half-dipped in the icy water, <laughs> triumphantly <laughs> raising the trout cod. AP APN Reuters followed suit with stories of the event, complete with similar photos capturing what makes it exciting and appealing. The broad international coverage is seen as the fruit of labour by local authorities who carried out numerous consistent familiarisation tours, or fam tours in short, inviting local and foreign media members to promote such
0: local events. Indeed, it's great to see more rural parts of the country being uh, appreciated internationally like this as well. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending? Many in Korea are reading about how two K-pop groups have been invited to perform
5: at the upcoming 2024 Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival, which takes place from the 12th to the 21st of April in California, the United States.
0: Yes, this is one of the biggest music festivals in the U.S. So even though we've gotten used to hearing about K-pop acts performing there in recent years, it's still a big deal to hear that that streak is continuing. So which K-pop singers do we have in the latest edition of Coachella? Girl group
5: La Seraphim and boy band 80s are the ones invited this time around. This was confirmed when the official lineup of performers for the annual Music and Arts Festival was announced on Tuesday over in the States. La Seraphim will be performing on April 13th and the 20th, while 80s will take to the stage on the 12th and the 19th. Yes, yeah,
0: so and once again, Coachella will be featuring some major American and international stars as well, which is, I guess, a further validation of K-pop standing in the world at the moment.
5: Yes, Coachella, which first started in 1999, is firmly established as one of the biggest and most important music festivals in the States. The bar gets higher and higher each year. This time around, some of the headliners include Lana Del Rey, uh, Tyler the Creator, Doja Cat, and even a No Doubt Reunion. Blackpink became the first K-pop girl group to perform at Coachella in in 2019, that is, but their show was held on a sub-main stage back then. Their global status improved significantly in less than four years, so they returned as one of the headliners of the main stage last year. La Seraphim carries that torch this year. As for 80s, they take on the honor of being the first K-pop boy band to perform at this stage. Back in 2020, Big Bang was supposed to set that record, but the
0: show was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, good luck to La Serafim and ETs at the Coachella Festival. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's time for Korea Book Club. This is our weekly segment where we dive into the world of Korean literature and books, usually through notable works in translation. And for that, so with us this week, we have literary critic Barry
6: Welsh. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hi. It's great to be back. OK, so what are you introducing to our listeners today? OK, so we have a great story that we're reviewing today. It's called "A Holiday Home. And the Korean title is exactly the same, Holiday Home. And it's by Pyon Hae Young. It was published in Korean in 2020 and translated into English by Pyon's regular translator, Sora Kim Russell, and published in English by Asia Publishers also in 2020 and Pyon was born in Seoul in 1972 she uh, studied uh, creative writing and uh, did a master's degree in literature at Hanyang University here in Seoul and then following her education, a uh, sort of literary education she went into the corporate world uh, she worked as an office uh, professional for several years and that's a setting that often uh, features in her stories and her novels mm. uh, in 2000 uh, she, she debuted as a writer and since then she She's produced uh, three collections of short stories, uh, Aoi Garden, To the Kennels and Evening Courtship, and also several uh, highly acclaimed novels, including Ashes in Red, The Hole and The Law of Lines, all of which we've uh, reviewed on the show in the past. Mm. Uh, And over the years, she's also won several of the big literary awards. To the Kennels won the Hanguk Ilbo Literary Award. Uh, Another short story won the Lee Hoseok Literature Prize. Uh, She won the Today's Young Writer Award Award, and famously, uh, she also won the Shirley Jackson Award for uh, uh, Sora Kim Russell's English translation of The Whole. And her novels and short stories explore uh, a variety of themes, but she's often uh, writing about the alienation that she observes in contemporary Korean society. And we also find uh, portrayals of uh, apocalyptic uh, scenarios or dystopian scenarios, and of course, lots of uh, grotesque imagery. Uh, and true. Trace elements uh, of these things can be found in today's story, Holiday Home.
0: Yes, as you've mentioned, uh, we've talked about uh, the author Pian several times on this segment over the years. Mm -hmm. And The whole is certainly a landmark work as well. Mm -hmm. Her dark and often thought-provoking works have... Uh, always left an impression, I feel. So tell us more about today's work, Holiday Home. What is it about and what makes it special?
6: Right. So uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of Pion in general and this is a great addition to her uh, body of, of work. And Holiday Home is interesting because it uh, t- sort of delves into an area of modern Queen literature that we don't or don't see that often. Right. And that's about the complexities of military life and its impact on individuals in Korean society. So, obviously, military service is mandatory for uh, men in Korea. And this story explores the life of E. Jinsu. And he's a former soldier. And he struggles, uh, as the story begins, he's you know, he's left the military, and he struggles to adjust to civilian life. Uh, and this is after being discharged due to some kind of scandal. The nature of the scandal is uh, ambiguous at the beginning of the story, sort of teased for, over the, the course of the narrative. Uh, and through experiences in. uh, civilian life and his uh, interactions with other uh, characters and people, his wife and his old friends and so on. The story examines the themes of power dynamics, uh, social hierarchy, and the general challenge of reintegrating back into society and not being a soldier anymore. And Pyun's narrative approach here, uh, you know, it's Lots of her novels have sort of graphic, uh, you know, violence and disgusting imagery. That isn't uh, what we find here. Instead, we have a nuanced view of the psychological uh, and sort of social impact of military service uh, in in Korea and on an individual. And her storytelling here is it, it's more notable for its subtlety and its depth. And she invites readers into the story to ponder the sort of broader uh, sort of social implications of the story uh, the focus here is really on character relationships particularly between Jin Soo and his wife who's actually the narrator of the story and Jin Su's military junior uh, Park and there's, you know, very sort of sinister layers to the, sta- the, the, the story. Uh, and these layers, they reveal this uh, sort of intricate nature of personal uh, and social dynamics. And I think her approach here reflects an aspect of modern Korean literature where writers often address social issues through sort of deeply personal or humanistic uh, stories and, you know, provide insights into, I guess, Korean psyche and social structures. And I think the story as a great addition to her body of work because it's a poignant reflection on this aspect of Korean society. This is a man leaving the military. Uh, and I think it's an important work uh, to help you understand that mm. issue and, and the themes around it.
0: Right. So it's perhaps less visceral, a bit more oh. subtle mm-hmm. uh, than what we're used to from uh, pian. It sounds very intriguing. Plenty to sink our teeth into as well, it seems. So how is this all explored in the narrative what actually takes place in the story
6: right yes yeah. so, uh, so like I said it's about the difficulty of transitioning from being a military man to a uh, civilian in uh, you know modern Korea contemporary Korea so the story follows Jin Soo uh, he's been a soldier for most of his career and he's discharged due to some kind of scandal and initially it seems like this scandal or, or his his explanation of the scandal is it was something to do with manipulation of supply uh, prices so they were sort of, him and his friends were skimming off the top, but then there's hints that perhaps it was something much worse, you know, he was involved in something, uh, you know, much crueler, um, you know some nastier kind of behaviour so anyway, after leaving the military he tries to build a life for himself he opens a beef restaurant but it fails due to sort of corner cutting and and fraudulent practices, sort of reflecting the, the pressure that are, uh, you know, pre- pressures on small business owners that are uh, in, in occurring in, in Korea at the moment. Uh, and then we also have his personal struggles inside his family with his wife and uh, his son is experiencing uh, violence at school, which has a parallel perhaps with what he was involved in in the military. Uh, and his son is choosing to stay in Canada instead of coming back to Korea. Uh, and the story you know, in, in talking about these relationships, it captures the sense of anxiety and despair uh, in, a, in a, a world or a situation where power dynamics and hierarchy influence all of these characters and all of the different aspects of their uh, lives. And so the story is really about these, uh, you know, the relationships between these characters, Jinsu and his wife, Jinsu and his son, Jinsu and his military junior park. And this relationship with his military junior, who comes back into his life unexpectedly, this reunion uh, you know after the you know this he's had this experience with his failed restaurant and financial struggles it's sort of tense and fraught with some kind of unspoken uh, incident or unspoken a history it's not entirely explained, but through this meeting uh the 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 story it's it's really talking about responsibility and and victimhood and just the long lasting impact that your actions have on you uh and how this can shape the the world that you're living in in the future and so through this the story offers a, a a very interesting commentary on just the human condition within a specific cultural context
0: right it sounds tense but compelling uh as you said, the central tension comes, I guess, from this relationship between Chinsu uh, and Park, mm-hmm. uh, and what took place during their time in the military. But it's more than that, right? It's, there are more uh, underlying themes and commentaries on broader issues.
6: Yeah, right. Absolutely. So she's really using this dynamic. Pyon's using this dynamic uh, to, to make a, a wider point about uh, modern Korean society, and you know, this idea of like the, the, the hierarchy and the, the power dynamics. a key theme is this struggle of adjusting from military to civilian life you know Jinsu struggles and grapples with his past in the military he can't make this transition The, the, the present world the civilian world just seems alien to him he doesn't know how to operate or function in it and so he struggles to reintegrate but this is compounded by the sort of reflection of the social hierarchy the and the power dynamics of the the people around him and so it, it's really about how these structures impact the individual and how they impact uh, relationships and define relationships between between people mm. uh, and so the story is you know it's it's really all about that what what is your personal responsibility uh you know how responsible are you for treating making other people a, a, a victim Victim. Right, And uh, it's really quite a subtle exploration of you know, these past actions and experiences and how they feed into the present and, and uh, shape the world that we're living in. It's a very complex and, I think, morally ambiguous story.
0: Okay, so where does this work then sit in the uh, broader context of Korean literature I guess what do you think readers will take away from it
6: right yes so uh, if you're a fan of uh, Pyon already then this is uh, definitely worth reading and I'm sure any anyone who does like her work will enjoy this as well and it just it offers a unique window into you know an area that we don't I, we don't find depicted in in literature or at least the translated literature so often is like the you know the, the modern soldier who's left the army and, and is going back into the world so it is very interesting from that point of view and it's also just a great exploration of personal identity uh, against uh, the backdrop of social expectations, which are obviously universal themes, which many people will uh, be able to appreciate. And uh, it's just a compelling story that I think resonates, uh, or at least will, I think will resonate with people. And uh, if you're interested in complex depictions of human nature and uh, society, then it's uh, definitely a story worth reading. OK, so that was Holiday Home by Pyunhae And that's all for Korea
0: Book Club this week. Barry, thank you for that recommendation and we'll see you again soon. OK, take care. And that's where we're going to wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again tomorrow to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>
4: Westworld Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check out our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures.
1: World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow when you're driving in snowy conditions. On days with heavy snowfall take extra caution on sloping lanes as you could easily lose control of your vehicle. On icy roads, refrain from speeding as slippery road conditions make it harder to steer or stop the wheels. Ensure you keep a wider distance with the car ahead of you as it takes longer to slow down. Drivers are also advised to use chains and other equipment to keep their tyres from slipping. If you don't have the proper equipment, spray sand or soil on the tyres and start off in second gear. When travelling to areas with extreme snowfall, make sure you check the road and traffic conditions before setting off. When stranded in heavy snow, call 119 for assistance.